Yes, God, we give you praise and honor you for you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And when we hit our valleys and low points, God, you meet us there and we still can praise you with great faith and hope. Today we come before your word and we look to you, God, to fill our hearts with your spirit. May you infuse us with hope. May we encounter your presence today. We look forward to that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So back in the summer of 1989, I was working as a resident treatment counselor for drug-addicted teenagers. Yeah, most of these kids had criminal backgrounds. They were fresh out of juvenile hall. And uh, this was my very first job out of college. I was incredibly naive. I was new in my Christian faith. So my co-counselor and I, we lived uh, with these six young men in the outskirts of San Martin, California on a five-acre parcel. And the typical day would consist of breaking up a whole bunch of fights and teaching kids how to do laundry and how to cook and clean and also just how to get along with one another. So twice a week, we would all load up in the van and we'd head out to our Narcotics Anonymous meetings. And one particular meeting that we went to, I remember that there were a group of gang members that showed up at that meeting. And I noticed that they started to have side conversations with our kids. Well, when the meeting wrapped up before we could do anything about it, three of our kids jumped into a car with these guys, with these men, and they sped off. And the kids that were still, that hung around, that didn't go with them, told us that there was a plan that that night this group would come back to our house that night, break in to steal stuff in order to sell it for drugs. And so my supervisor, Pam, had this idea. She said, we're going to take everybody out of the house. We're going to go stay in another group home and uh, be safe that night. Uh, everyone that is except for me. <laughs> yeah, Pam told me she wanted me to stay back and protect the house from being robbed. <laughs> so there I was that night, and I was in my room. I was sitting on my bed and uh, all alone in the dark, looking out the window, waiting to get robbed by a bunch of gang members. About 1 a.m. in the morning, it seemed like nothing was happening, so I climbed into bed fully clothed with a steak knife in my fist under my pillow. <laughs> About 1.30, I began to hear the sound of an SUV rolling down our dirt road in this secluded area, and my heart began to race, and I started to pray like I'd never prayed before. I begged God to please protect me. I knew that at least one of the teens in that car had been a former gang leader. He was addicted to PCP, and he boasted having killed someone, although it was never proven. And the rest of the men in the car that they were with, I had absolutely no idea what they were capable. But one thing I did know is that something I'd learned about drug abuse is that it literally poisoned any type of kindness and compassion out of them, and that surely I would be nothing to them other than a barrier to what they wanted. So I honestly just fell to my knees there at my bedside, and I just begged God to please send angels to protect the house and keep me from you know, harm. And I prayed and I prayed. So the car rolls forward, stops, the engine turns off, and I just pray and I pray and I pray, and the doors never opened. 
And for what seemed like a really long time, seemed like forever, the car just sat there quietly. And my prayers just started to get bolder and bolder. And I have no idea what those men in that car experienced or what they saw, but I can tell you this, that that whole carload of drug-addicted gang members never stood one foot outside of that car. The doors never opened. And eventually, it just, the car turned back on and away they went. Now, I would love to tell you that at that moment, I took that steak knife into the kitchen, made myself a sandwich, hopped back into bed and slept like a baby. That didn't happen. I was up all night, mostly shaking, scared to death. But the next morning, I was still there. So was the TV. So was the furniture. And I asked this question, what does a world without compassion look like to you? What does it look like? I know that maybe some of you in this room, perhaps experience something somewhat similar to maybe that. Or maybe you grew up in a home where kindness and compassion were absent. And instead of safety, there was fear, insecurity, and maybe even abuse. You see, we all need compassion. Like we need light. You know, we can survive for a while without it, but it affects us. And I can still see In the eyes of the kids that I worked with, what I would call compassion deprivation, there was a lostness, a hardness, an emptiness in their eyes because care and compassion are essential to our well-being. It's important for our world. You know, at that time, I didn't know Jesus well. I was brand new in my faith. But one thing that I did know is this. I knew that Jesus loved broken people, and he loved these broken people, and that's what brought me to that place, and it's what kept me there for that season of my life. You see, the compassion of Jesus Christ had transformed and changed my life, and I wanted so badly for his compassion to change their lives as well. Today, we're going to talk about compassion, and there's a real temptation when we hear the word compassion to think that it's about being a nice person, but you know what? The word compassion itself is from the Latin root cumpati. And what that means is to suffer with. And if we're truly going to live like Jesus, then we have to expect that it's going to require more from us than just being nice people, right? (laughs) We were following the life of David and watching David through his ups and downs. And compassion, you think, is kind of a soft word. But what we see today is David do something incredibly bold, incredibly strong when he extends unwarranted compassion to someone that really didn't deserve it. And that's what Jesus calls us to do for others as well. Colossians 3.12 says this, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So let's dig in together and see what we can learn from David as he expresses compassion in action. So if you have message notes there in your program, go ahead and pull those out. If you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 9. If you don't have a Bible with you today, don't worry. The main verses will be up here on the screens. And I would encourage you, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we'd love to give you one. You just can grab one in the lobby out there as you leave today. So I want to start with a little background of things that were going on. So here's the deal. Through this series, we've seen 
David began to ascend as he pursues God's heart. He gains favor with God. But we've also seen the descent of Saul, descending into jealousy, hatred, envy. You know, he begins to just despise David. He wants him dead, and he's hunting him. And this leads Saul's heart further and further away from God. And Saul, he begins to worship idols. He consults a witch. And then he takes his army into an unwise battle against the Philistines at Mount Gilboa. And it's this battle where Saul and three of his sons, including David, I'm sorry, including Jonathan, David's friend, all die in that battle. After this, the Philistines, just hungry from this war, begin a pursuit of Saul's family to completely annihilate and wipe them out. The family, most of them were able to flee, and they disappeared into hiding, except for the, Saul's one very last son, Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth was able to hold off the Philistines, and he reigned for a short period of time as king in his father's place before two of his generals stabbed him in his sleep. Well, it's during this period that David emerges as king, ushering in a time of peace out of a season of blood and battle. And this is where we enter our story, where David would begin his monarchy with a bold act of compassion. And so here is our first point of compassion and action. It's this, to seek opportunities to be kind. Seek opportunities to be kind. So today, just in the time of David, isn't it just kind of a dog-eat-dog world? I mean, it's ugly out there. It's a battle to the top, survival of the fittest, take no prisoners. It often feels like we're nothing more than somebody else's lunch. So there are these two little birds, two robins. They're sitting in a tree, and uh, one of them says to the other, I'm so hungry. And the other one says, oh, me too. Let's fly down to the ground and get some wonderful worms to eat up for lunch. So they flew to the ground, sure enough, and they found this nice soft plot of soil, and they began just eating worms and eating and eating until they could eat no more. And the one said to their, oh, I'm so full. I don't think I can fly back up into the tree. And the other said, oh, me too. I have an idea. Let's just lay here for a little bit and bask in the warm sunshine. And so that's what they did. They laid back, and they took a little rest in the sun. And soon enough, they drifted off to sleep. Well, along came a tomcat, spotted the robins, and he decided that he'd just gull them up. And that's what he did. He ate them up. And as that cat began to lick his paws, enjoying his meal, he thought to himself, boy, I just love Baskin Robbins. <laughs> yes, indeed. It is a dog-eat-dog world out there, or a cat-eat-bird world, all of which makes selfless acts of compassion seem that much more remarkable. Let's take a look. 2 Samuel 9, 1-4. One, one day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba, who'd been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show kindness to them. And Ziba replied, yes, actually one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. 
Where is he? asked the king. Oh, he's in Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makir, son of Emil. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Saul was David's mortal enemy. I mean, he pursued and tried to kill David to his final day. And yet, interesting enough, remarkably, David here extends mercy and kindness to Saul's family. I mean, this shows us David's heart and also his integrity. If you remember a few back, weeks back when Pastor Ron taught on David and Jonathan, you remember there was a pact that was made, a pledge that David made to protect and care for the family of Saul. And, you know, here we are, and, and really, with no resistance left, no one would have expected David to follow through on that promise. And yet David was a man of his word, and he stayed true. And he searched out to find the remaining relatives of Saul. So Ziba tells Saul that there's, there's, there's actually, you know, Jonathan had a son that was left that was in hiding. And we find out as we go a little further in the verses here that this young man's name was Mephibosheth. And that actually wasn't his original name. We find the story of why his name was changed in 2 Samuel 4, where we hear the story that when news hit that King Saul and his family and his sons were killed, that it sent shockwaves throughout the palace. King Saul and his sons are dead. King Saul and his sons are dead. Women wept. Servants scattered. And Jonathan's little boy was only five years old when he got the news that his father, his grandfather, and three of his uncles had died in battle. And this little boy just began to cry. But there was no time to cry. His nurse grabbed him and began to run through the palace in order to escape before the Philistines would wipe them out. And as she ran, she stumbled and fell, and the boy launched from her arms, fell to the ground, and, bo and both of his legs were broken. But there was no time to numb the pain. There was no time to set the bones. The nurse grabbed him back up, screaming and pray and in pain, and they ran for their lives, running away from the Philistines to a place where no one would ever look for them, a place called Lodabar. You see, Lodabar was a place where no one wanted to live. I mean, we'd all love to live in a place called Raisedabar, not Lodabar. <laughs> Because lo in Hebrew means no. Debar means pasture. So this place literally is a place that's no pasture. There's no food there. It's a desolate place, a barren wasteland east of the Jordan River. And it was here in Lodabar that they changed Mirabel's name, the name he was given from his father, to Mephibosheth, which meant son of shame. The little boy went from luxury to poverty, from running through the palace to hobbling crippled in the street. His name was, went from being God is my contender to being known as the son of shame. And he lived in Lodabar where you drank from a muddy cistern and you scavenged for breadcrumbs to be able just to eat. But it was here in this place that God found him. And that the grace of God was revealed to him. You see, because David had experienced God's favor. He'd experienced God's grace. And he was ready to share that and pass it on. David had every reason to hate Saul and to wipe out every single descendant. But instead of being bitter, David chose to be better. And what he did was forgive. And that's the call of Jesus on our lives as well. 
Ephesians 4.32 says this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ, God forgave you. David demonstrated for us that we not just to kind of sit around and wait for opportunities to bless others come to us, but we're to go out searching for them. We look for opportunities to express God's kindness to others because when we seek, then we find, right? See, compassion isn't reactional, it's relational. It's proximate and present and personal. David just didn't send him a care package, but he showed his care face to face. That's how he extended his grace, which is our next compassion action. Extend grace and acceptance. Now, grace is undeserved favor. It's kind of the hallmark, the centerpiece of God's love for us, his love, compassion, and grace, which we never, ever deserve. And that's what David did for Mephibosheth. 2 Samuel 9, 5 to 8 says, So David sent for him and brought him from Akir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at my king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Just picture in your mind, Mephibosheth living in Lodabar, one day there's a knock at his door and there are David's soldiers standing there. I'm sure that he would sure, surely think that this was a march off to his death. After all, like we said, anytime a king would fall, they would wipe out his entire family so no one would have a claim to the throne. And then they took Mephibosheth and began the long trek to Jerusalem. And just the imagination of what might happen at the end of that journey in his head. And then he's ushered into David's presence, back in the palace again. And there's David on the throne in complete control. And Mephibosheth, I'm sure, was just gray with fear. And I think that's why David's first words out of his mouth were, don't be afraid. And then David begins to shower him with gracious, powerful words. He gave Mephibosheth three powerful promises. The first, I will shower you with love. Now it's translated here as kindness, but this is the word hesed that we've been listening to and hearing through the stories of David and Ruth. Hesed meaning God's covenantal love. I will shower you with hesed love for the sake of your, son, of your father, Jonathan. Second promise, I will give you all of the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. Now, property in that time, it was a position of power and of wealth. So instantly, Mephibosheth went from complete poverty all the way to rags to riches. Third promise, David promised him, I will adopt you into my family. You will eat at my table always. You have become a child of the king. You see, David fulfilled every promise to Jonathan and took it a whole lot further than that even in order to bless Mephibosheth. And what was the response? 
Mephibosheth says, you know, who am I? What is your servant that you would do this for a dead dog like me? Now, know that when he refers to himself as a dog, that he's not thinking he's some fluffy little Pomeranian. <laughs> you see, dogs in those days, they were kind of vicious animals. They were like wolves. They traveled in packs and they often attacked people. And so this was a horrible insult that he was putting upon himself. You see, it reflected how his self-worth had sunken so low and that he had truly owned his name, the son of shame. All those years of being looked down on as a cripple, all the harsh thoughts in his head of the fall of his grandfather, being raised up in fear and poverty, it all crushed him. But David's words began to speak grace over his life. Gracious words and acceptance are such a powerful thing Powerful thing, especially to those who feel they don't deserve it, right? I mean, Jesus used this power when he would reach out and actually touch the lepers whom no one would ever touch and how he would embrace the sick and listen to the prostitute. He saw them. He loved them. He accepted them. And this changed their lives. You know, and Jesus accepts us as well. He does with all our crippled and broken frailties so that we can accept and love and show compassion to others. Romans 15, 7 says this, Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. Grace, love, and compassion are so powerful, transforming, transforming and healing. So this is very sweet older grandma, and she wanted to take her grandson for a trip to the zoo. And so they were going to spend that day together. And the boy's eyes were just wide with excitement and wonder, and his cheeks were just flooded with his big smile, highlighting all his beautiful little freckles on his face. And so they got in line to go see a face painter. And as they're standing there, one of the girls in line looks over at the boy and she says, oh, why, you have so many freckles, there's no place for them to paint. And the poor boy's face just went down. His eyes welled up with tears, and he sunk down in shame. And the grandmother got down on her knees, grabbed the boy's face, and she said to him, I love your freckles. <laughs> you know, when I was a little girl, I always wanted freckles. I think they're beautiful. His head came up and he said, really, Grandma? And, he, and then she said to him, oh, yes, for sure. I mean, name one thing that's more beautiful than freckles. And the little boy thought for a moment. And then he touched his grandma's cheek and said to her, wrinkles. <laughs> you see, when we receive love, and kindness and compassion, it floods our heart and allows us to be able to extend that to others. It's God's way. It's God's plan. Love and grace and acceptance are the way, the greatest gifts that we can give to one another and the way that we display love. So our last compassion action point is this. Deliver practical help. Deliver practical help. You know, I think when we hear the word compassion, isn't it true that we sort of kind of think of it as an emotion, like empathy 
You know, someone's going through a really hard time. We hear about that. And I think if we just feel like, you know, we feel bad for them, that, that we're a compassionate person. You know, we feel bad. We might even say something like, you know, I'm so sorry. This is horrible. I'll pray for you. And all of that is really good and fine, except for the fact that, you know, Jesus didn't just feel bad for people. He got involved and engaged in their lives. And David did the same with Mephibosheth. He entered into his life. He took him into his family. He cared for his needs. He had him sit at his royal table. 2 Samuel 9, 9 to 11 says this. Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba, and he said, I've given you your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. And it tells us Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant. I will do all that you've commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's sons. David took Mephibosheth in and met his every need. He gave him Ziba to help and serve him. And I'm sure Ziba had a whole lot of energy. I mean, this guy had 15 sons. <laughs> David took care of everything. His whole life was transformed. But you know what? There is a flip side to this story that I completely have never seen in all the times I've read it. And it was revealed to me just this last week, thank you, Lord, through a blog post that I read by a guy named Andrew Camp. He helped me see this through a whole different lens. You see, yes, David helped Mephibosheth, but also, can you consider how Mephibosheth also helped David? You know, think of this. Think of what David learned from having his enemy's grandson sit at his table every night. Think of the impact of having someone with a severe disability in his life had on the way that the king led and shepherded God's people. You ever notice in the Bible, it's interesting to me how often God, his heart just calls out for the widow, for the imprisoned, the orphan, and the outcast. And how often, especially in the prophets, God tells and announces to his people, don't forget those who need me the most, those whom society overlooks. Jesus, interesting enough, in Luke 14, have you ever seen this? And he tells us when we throw a party, he says, you should invite the poor and the lame and the blind and you will be blessed. And then in Matthew 25, Jesus tells us that anytime that we do things for the sick, the imprisoned and the poor, that we do it for him. Now, this is really subtle, but think about this. What he's saying is that when we extend love and grace and care to those in need, that we're not showing Jesus to them, but they are showing Jesus to us. <laughs> There's a very incredible special human being who I think understood this better than anyone else, and her name is Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa lived in the poorest of poor part of Calcutta, India, and she said this, I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time. I can only feed one person at a time, just one. You get closer to Christ by coming closer to each other. 
As Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do to me. And so I began. I picked up one person. And maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I never would have picked up the next 42,000. The whole work is just a drop in the ocean. But if I didn't put the drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. Same thing for you. Same thing in your family. Same thing in the church where you go. Just be the one. And the one. And the one. This is faith in action. This is faith that's real. It's a faith that moves where love moves from the heart into our hands. James 2, 14 to 17 says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, Goodbye, have a great day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothes. What good does that do? You see, faith by itself is not enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. So here's a question. Who is your Mephibosheth? <laughs> Have you ever considered how someone in need just might meet a need in you? And as we wrap up today, I think it's important just to kind of reflect on what we've read. You see, this account in God's word is purposeful. It was included in the Old Testament stories in order to foretell of a greater story. Can you see yourself in this story? Can you see yourself maybe as Mephibosheth? You see, because we've all been crippled by a fall. We're broken and lost and we're desperate. And we're enemies and outcasts who don't deserve God's love and kindness. And yet God in his great and amazing grace and love came searching for us. And the king extended grace and forgiveness. And he took us in as, our, as his own. You see, we were filled with guilt, filled with fear, filled with shame. And he came with love and grace and blessing, to shower us with compassion, to heal us from our sin, to make us rich with spiritual blessings, to adopt us of his, of, as his very own children. Can you see what an incredible gift this is? Can you see how undeserved and gracious it is that he offers us this? Jesus has set a place for you at his banqueting table. You are invited. It's the greatest act of compassion that the world has ever known. He gave his life so that you could live in, through, and for him. And so the question is, how are you going to respond to this gracious act of compassion? How will you share it with others? Let's pray. Lord, we are just <laughs> incredibly grateful for this gift and this reminder, this story that we can relate to so personally. I just pray that it fills our hearts with gratitude and wonder for all that you've done, all that you gave. And Lord, for those in the room that don't know you, Lord, that have been seeking and recognizing the void in their heart, I pray that they would embrace the love that's been waiting for them since the beginning of time, the great love of the Father who created them, who wants to make them family. 
May they give up and acknowledge their sin and brokenness, their fallenness, and look to you to be a savior with an act of grace of Jesus dying on the cross and take that as their own. We're grateful for what you've done. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how 